people they are very brave but also we are fighting not only against Putin's military machine but we are fighting against unfair global capitalism how about wiping out the 97 billion dollars of public debt that the Ukraine owns to western banks If you really want to be solidaristic do that they are not doing any a person that that has not perhaps been involved in campaigns may look at an action around a microwave and chairs and they might be like that's okay like what does that mean what it means is that what ultimately these workers are fighting for is control over their workplace ultimately it's a matter of were there enough workers that were not recycled that were not just ground through over the last year or so since the, the campaign began to really be able to stand up and vote and not be afraid of what happens. It has just been a, a miserable existence. You're chronically short-staffed. You don't have basic materials to do your job. It was like, we just need a voice in our job. Like, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And like, we all felt like we were on the menu at work. There are humans that touch the cloth that we come into contact with all the time. And they work in these big, often very dangerous factories in conditions that are hard to imagine in contemporary American society. Right now we are in a tight um, labor market, which means that you have a little bit more leverage as workers. And I would really encourage um, people at this specific moment in time where there's so many shortages and, and employers are desperate to actually push back. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. On today's show, Labor Express Radio brings us voices from the Ukrainian left on Workweek Radio, Wars, and Oligarchs. Two reports on Amazon, one from Valley Labor Report, the other from The Rick Smith Show. Then, inside the successful organizing effort at REI from the Belabored Podcast. On On Mus. Longtime organizer Daisy Pitkin on her new book, On the Line. And we wrap up with Justine answering all your work and union questions with a little help from George the Cat on Red Dead Redemption. I'm Chris Garlock, and that's all ahead on today's selection of highlights from nearly 150 shows in the Labor Radio Podcast Network. If you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do, You'll find links to the entire programs in our show notes. And of course, you can find all 150 shows on our website, newly updated at laborradionetwork.org. Check it out. Let us know what you think. Here's the show. Yeah, this one's for the workers. 
You're listening to WLPN 105.5 FM Chicago, and you're listening to Labor Express Radio, Chicago's only labor news and current affairs radio program, news for working people by working people. I'm your host, Jerry Mead Lucero, and this is the Sunday, March 20th, 2022 edition of Labor Express. The Ukraine Solidarity Committee organized a virtual meeting, a virtual event that I was able to uh, take part in. And as part of that event, they had voices of people from the left in Ukraine talking about the situation there, particularly people that are associated with the social movement Ukraine, which is a uh, basically a network of socialist trade unionists. Um, I guess they're attempting to build a political opposition within Ukraine to the Ukrainian government, which has basically been uh, right-leaning and neoliberal and so on. The first voice we're going to hear is Vitaly Dudin. Uh, Vitaly is one of the leaders of the social movement in Ukraine. Um, he's a trade union activist and has helped to build this kind of left opposition in the country. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for your solidarity. I'm very glad to hear all from you. I'm proud that Ukrainian people, it is a synonym for the anti-imperialism in today's world. And our people, they are very brave. But also we are fighting not only against Putin's military machine, but we are fighting against unfair global capitalism. Ukraine is not only the victim of the Russian aggression, but uh, also it is a victim of uh, unfair global system of relations. Our country is deeply debted by the IMF and other uh, creditors. Our country is uh, damaged by unfair conditions from IMF and the other institutions. And uh, our people understand that we cannot stand in this war if we do not change our social system. It is impossible to win the war if we will not confiscate the wealth of the biggest Ukrainian oligarchs. We just have no other way. One more feature that I want to admit, it is the problems of the ordinary people. Of course, war did not cancel the class struggle and social problems. Our nurses and the railway workers, they under the big pressure of their obligations on the workplaces. But their salaries are still low as they were before the war. And it's terrible. I received a lot of uh, applications from the nurses which uh, work in the whole day in the hospitals and after the work day, they should uh, go to the volunteer centers and uh, take uh, even additional obligations without uh, additional payment. The reason it is uh, the deadly budget deficit. 
our uh, government should get more money. But of course, their policy is still neoliberal. They think, for example, Minister of Finance, Sergei Marchenko, uh, that uh, Ukraine should not demand cancellation of debt because uh, our uh, financial elite will think that uh, Ukrainians, they are not uh, good partners because they don't repay their debts. I think it's total. We should take money everywhere where we, we can. And the debt cancellation is one of the most uh, fair ways to obtain needed money. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for Working People by Working People. This week on COVID, race, and democracy, we'll look at the role of oligarchs in Russia, Israel, Ukraine, and the United States. I'm your host, Steve Zeltzer. The Oxford Dictionary defines the term oligarch as one, a ruler in an oligarchy, and two, especially in Russia, a very rich business leader with a great deal of political influence. Many of the oligarchs in Russia got their wealth as they used privatization to capture the wealth of Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. That was the money number from the 1972 film Cabaret. This is Pacifica's COVID Race and Democracy. I'm Steve Zeltzer. Greek economist and politician Yanis Varoufakis published an article in Project Syndicate on March 21st titled, Why Stop with American Oligarchs? He discussed this in the context of the Ukraine conflict with musician and activist Roger Waters on the recent panel on YouTube. Here is a part of the conversation between Roger Waters and Yanis Varoufakis. Why is this war being encouraged to proceed by pouring money into the Ukraine, A, and B, by not engaging in diplomacy. It, it seems quite clear, does it not, that the reason that it's being exacerbated and allowed to go on is because the oligarchs wanted to. And as Yanis pointed out in one of his recent things that I read, oligarchs are not Russians. They're the few rich people who run everything, and they're everywhere. Mm -hmm. Certainly, they're all over the West. The West is completely controlled by corporations, and, and the people who invest in those corporations, by and large, oligarchs, because they've got most of the cash or, and whatever. They want it to keep going because it makes money. And th this is this is really the thing that we, we, we're not looking at, is the fact that the people who are making the decision to keep the war going and to keep killing Ukrainians and Russians. There are two options. One is a tragic one, a quagmire, a kind of Afghanistan, a permanent conflict, something between Afghanistan and Cyprus on the eastern flank of Europe, a slow-burning, maybe not that slow-burning, permanent conflict of a divided country with armies of occupation, with uh, expropriation here, there, everywhere. This is, you know, 
a catastrophe. It's a catastrophe for Ukraine. It's a catastrophe for our comrades in Russia. We have comrades, as we speak now, I'm not going to mention their names for obvious reasons, who are in prison, being tortured by Putin's henchmen for having demonstrated in St. Petersburg and in Moscow. There are particular persons that, you know, occupy my soul and my mind almost every day because I know what they're going through. We'll sort this out whereby there is an agreement of the two superpowers, Moscow and Washington, could, could come to an arrangement with Zelensky agreeing to it and with the European Union playing an auxiliary role, uh, role mainly financing, that there's going to be something that Putin can proclaim to be a victory mm. and something that the West can proclaim the victory. In a solution that leaves everybody slightly dissatisfied, but in the end spares the people of Ukraine. And what would that solution be? It's really very straightforward. Cessation of uh, the conflict, removal of the Russian troops, an independent, neutral Ukraine along the lines of Austria. We can discuss possible association with the European Union, like Austria had one during the Cold War. Regarding the Donbas area, you can have something like the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland which creates checks and balances, a kind of joint sovereignty, the same way that Northern Ireland has enjoys joint sovereignty by London and Dublin with EU money and uh, investment. Crimea can be kicked into the, into the long grass and can be put on the shelf to discuss, you know, in a thousand years again. Uh, <laughs> that would be a solution that Putin would take to his own folks and say, look, I won. What did I want? To end the eastward expansion of NATO. Yeah. I succeed. So he can, he, can, he can proclaim his own victory. We can proclaim our own victory. That, you know, Russian troops are out and they didn't destroy the sovereignty of Ukraine and the Ukrainians can live in peace. And if the Europeans really mean their commitment to the Ukrainian people, you know, stop painting everything yellow and blue, send them 100 billion euros mm -hmm. and rebuild the bloody country. And you know what? Something else. How about wiping out the $97 billion of public debt that the Ukraine owns to the Western banks? If you really want to be solidaristic, do that. They are not doing any of that. My suspicion, it's a suspicion, I cannot prove it. History will tell, is that this is a solution President Zelensky really, really aches for. He really wants it. He's already mentioned four days ago that he no longer wants the Ukraine to be part of NATO. He has already mentioned that there can be an arrangement about Donbas and that Crimea can be discussed later. I said a thousand years, he said later. That was Greek economist and politician Yanis Varoufakis in conversation with musician and activist Roger Waters on a recent episode of Let's Talk It Over, a podcast from DIEM25. And that concludes today's edition of COVID Race and Democracy. I've been your host, Steve Zeltzer. Thanks for listening. Welcome back. You are still listening to the Valley Labor Report, Alabama's only union talk radio show. We are now in overtime, and we've got some good stuff for you today. We are talking to labor reporter Luis Leon about the Amazon union campaign, explaining 
why we don't want to give cops more power. Talking about some updates in the OVEC union case and more, so let's go ahead and get started. And yesterday, Luis dropped an article titled, One Year After the Failed Amazon Union Drive, Workers in Bessemer Are Voting a Second Time. And it was really good, and I was wanting to talk about the election anyways, so I figured we'd bring Luis on, so that's what we did. Luis, welcome back to the program. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about your article, and, and, and the big thing that, that you're trying to do with that article is talk, talking about the second round of the campaign, and maybe ways that it's different from the first. And I think you were able to do a bit more on the ground kind of reporting for the first round, weren't you? Yes, yes. I, I went down to Alabama and um, interviewed workers outside of the Circle K uh, gas station at four in the morning. So, yeah, I was I was on the ground. Yeah, this time around, I, unfortunately, I wasn't able to do that, but I wanted to keep up with the story. It's an important election and the fight of workers in the South, like we got to support it. Absolutely. So what do you think, what has it seemed to you watching the coverage and talking to folks? I'm sure that you've talked to people on the phone and, and stuff who are connected to the campaign. What ha has stuck out to you about the differences this time than last time? So I think based on what they were able to build, what they've been, what has accelerated, what has been ramped up is the shop floor actions that workers are taking, right? So one of the first things that you want to do as a union at a company like Amazon, I'd say, is take up space within that company, right? Which is the strategy that some of the Teamsters have said that they want to employ, is the strategy that Amazonians United has been employing in terms of these shop floor actions. I wrote a piece in Labor Notes about how they coordinated three walkouts in New York City and in, as, at delivery stations, right? Delivery stations are much smaller, though, than a fulfillment center. So I think what the RWDSU and the workers in Bessemer are doing is it's a tougher, even tougher fight because of how big the warehouse is and the massive number of people that work there. You mentioned that shop floor action that, that people like Isaiah and, and, and other folks are, mm -hmm. are taking. the, And you mentioned that in your piece, quote, in January, Thomas and co-workers in the shipping dock department collected signatures on a petition demanding higher pay, longer breaks, better communication about their rate targets, you know, stuff like that. And delivered that petition to management, and they got some of the things that they were asking for. They got new, they got new and more microwaves in the break room. They got more chairs in the break room. Like these are th not only are they taking these actions, but they're taking the actions and they're winning, and right. they're showing people that they can win. How do you d d does it, are Isaiah and these other folks that you're talking to, are they saying that that kind of stuff, showing the viability of collective action, that that is making a difference in their coworkers' perception of the viability of a union writ large? Yeah, that's another good question. I think we see it in terms of, if you remember last time around, in terms of the rally that I went down to, to Alabama, it was pouring rain and you look at how many people came out. There wasn't as public of a campaign of union support, right? So what these actions, these shop floor actions do is that they serve to some degree as a structure test. It tells the union, hey, these are workers that are willing to go publicly toe-to-toe -to -toe with management and have an oppositional relationship to management, not some business unionism bullshit that we're partners with management, but saying it's us versus them. 
And this is what we're going to demand from you. And you're going to give it to us. So that not only builds power, but it also sends clear information to the union that workers are ready to fight. So it may seem a person that, that has not perhaps been involved in campaigns may look at an action around a microwave in chairs. They might be like, that's okay. Like, what does that mean? What it means is that what ultimately these workers are fighting for is control over their workplace. So I mentioned briefly, and the, the picture for this article is photographs of workers saying, I'm voting union, yes. So that it's also a structure test of how willing workers are to go up against the boss when they publicly put their names out there. I'm not like a big fan of the technocratic unionism of saying you must check off these boxes because if that were the case, if there were a permit, a perfect formula and we just used it and we would have, I don't know, 70% uh, 70% unionization rate in this country, but that's not the case, right? But there's some nuts and bolts things that do work. It does work to talk to your coworkers. I also, one of the things that I lightly criticized was the whole idea of treating union elections like U.S. congressional races, right? Where you have a bunch of people coming in, high headliner endorsements and so forth. The most important thing is Isaiah talking to his coworkers. And that's why Amazon responded so aggressively against it, wrote him up, gave him a warning because they realized that it's not Bernie Sanders flying down to Alabama that's going to win this. It's Isaiah and thousands of other workers at that warehouse talking with one another and building power together. Uh, great article. Luis, thanks so much for taking the time today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. All right. Yeah. So we've been talking to Luis Leon. He, uh, he wrote that article for The Real News. It's really great. Check it out. Welcome back to The Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So this week was the end of an era for the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. It was like 23 years. James Hoffa was president of the team. He has retired, stepped down, and the new president, Sean O'Brien, has taken over. A Boston guy, Teamsters Local 25, up in Boston. I've asked Jordan Zacharin to come talk with us. Jordan is a media producer over at More Perfect Union. Jordan, thanks for taking time for us. Thanks for having me, as always. I'm looking at the you know, new Teamster president in, the, the promise, the goal, the direction all, all Amazon, really, going to go after Amazon because that's really the behemoth. That's the elephant in the room for everything going to happen in this country. Yeah, this the, the election happening on Tuesday is actually it's an independent union. In in Alabama last year, they tried to organize best and they're still trying to do that was the RWDSU. Now, this one is just an independent union called the Amazon Labor Union. And it is run by a guy named Chris Smalls, a, a worker who was at Amazon. I think he worked there for five five years or so. Got fired after protesting their lack of COVID protocols and the outbreaks that were happening. It was early on in COVID and Amazon just kept on grinding, kept on grinding. No real protocols and uh, people got sick. He protested. That was it for him. And ever since then, he's been trying to get this place organized. And finally, they got enough cards signed. They've got a lot going up against them. But uh, it's, I think they've helped at very least shine a light on just how brutal Amazon can be with their brutal, offensive, and cruel, and just personal with their union busting. I'm hoping, very hopeful Tuesday, that the election goes all the way I hope it does. Yeah, and you're right about there needs to be a big, big organization with the resources and the militancy and the experience like Teamsters with the new leadership coming in as well. To go after a company like this, it's, this is one warehouse, right, in Staten Island, the JFK warehouse, the biggest one in New York, but 
And if, if they do unionize it, it will be a huge national story in the same way you've seen Starbucks, the, the two in Buffalo that or, that organized, that all of a sudden the, they kept rolling. It's definitely going to require big investment. I know the Teamsters were able to help block a few different distribution centers happening that were planned for San Francisco because they you know want better conditions, they want better pay, they want better, better benefits for their workers. And so they were able to do that. So Teamsters are already having a few small victories, which is nice to see. When it comes to Amazon, but you're right. It's it here in New York. It's definitely like a pro-union spirit, and I think ultimately it's a matter of were there enough workers that were not uh, recycled, that were not just taken out, were not uh, just ground through over the last year or so since the the campaign began to really be able to stand up and vote and not be afraid of what happens. Right? I think that I don't think there's any question of the excitement around it. Right? They hold these rallies. They're out there every single day. They're holding rallies on the weekend. Like bringing food to people, they have created a community more so than the great, the old, great, like old fashioned union way. This is like a movement, not just a transaction. No, absolutely. And so I think the excitement is there. It's just a matter of have they been, you know, have they, people been intimidated? There was, we put a video this week of the arrest that happened. That video came out, but talking about it further and putting it in context, the guy was delivering, Chris was delivering grilled chicken and pasta to some workers, and they sent out like five or six squad cars for them at the NYPD. It's not a question of whether they want to be unionized, it's whether they have the, whether they fear it. Or not the consequences. I mean, no, and this is where you know the, the reality of this company being so large and having such resources that they can influence police departments, as we saw in Bessemer, as we're seeing in New York. What what was one of the statements by one of the police officers? Something like "We won, you lost," or something like that. Yeah, they they were shaking hands with Amazon management. You know, and and especially when you're that big of an employer, and you're going to have pull right? Whether it's uh, financial or people, you, you sponsor those police gathering, right? A couple of weeks ago, actually, Amazon sponsored a big late meeting amongst labor lawyers and uh, employment side labor, labor lawyers that the NLRB actually went to. So, or OSHA actually went to. And so it's one of those things where they have their tentacles everywhere. And so they have a lot of people on their side. And so doing things like not filing uh, union bus forms about how much they paid union busters for an entire year, that just gets looked, brushed aside. People there are no consequences and people overlook it. It's going to also take the state, the power of the state to say, Hey, uh, we got to stop your monopolization. We got to stop these practices. We got to make you actually responsible for the way that you hurt people. Jordan, I appreciate the time, man. Great stuff. Thanks so much. Thanks, Rick. Good stuff. Jordan Zacharin, uh, media producer there at more perfect union. Make sure you check out the work that he does. Fantastic stuff. Perfectunion.us. You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belabored, episode 243. Today, we are talking to one of the workers who recently organized the very first union at REI, the would-be progressive sports and outdoor equipment retailer. Retail has historically been one of the hardest sectors to organize in, with its high turnover and precarious workforce and big employers that can invest huge amounts of time and money in crushing union drives. So in this episode, we're looking at one recent example of how retail workers in New York City are bucking that trend. The workers at REI, a retail chain and consumer co-op that specializes in outdoor gear and sportswear, recently voted overwhelmingly to form a union at one of the flagship stores in downtown Manhattan's Soho neighborhood. 
Like a typical large corporation, REI tried to deter workers from organizing with heaps of anti-union propaganda, while also trying to frame itself as a friendly employer who just wants the best for its workers. The union busting underscored the irony that REI, as a co-op, prides itself on its progressive values and community spirit when it comes to issues like climate change and promoting racial equity. When it comes to labor issues, however, it's a different story. We spoke to Stephen Buckley, a retail sales specialist, member of the REI Union SoHo Organizing Committee, and now a member of of the Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union, or RWDSU. We talked about how the store's workers dealt with the anti-union resistance and how they managed to turn the crisis of the pandemic into an organizing opportunity. I started at REI in September of last year, so I've only been there about six months, which in my department as a, as a veteran staff member, there's a, there's a joke in, our, in the clothing team that the average tenure is uh, three months. Um, but yeah, I started in September and I think I was um, approached by a coworker, like like a lot of folks are during the quiet moments of organizing, you know, a handful of weeks into the job. And I was immediately on board just because, you know, working conditions at any job where you had to be in person every single day have just been dreadful the past two years. Like I... I, I I don't think it's just retail, but I think the broader, like if you have to work in a frontline job, it has just been a a miserable existence. You're chronically short-staffed. You don't have basic materials to do your job, sometimes due to supply chain shortages, but a lot of times just due to like the flagrant cost cutting that has kind of ruled the day during COVID. You know, what appealed to me about it was like, we just need a voice in our job. We need to be able to self-advocate for safe working conditions. It was also about, you know, two weeks into two or three weeks into my job that like one of my coworkers got their foot run over by a pallet jack. And like that is a reality of working retail. It's like you can get significantly injured. Like I think people forget that we have to move 500 pound pallets of product as part of our jobs. Um, And so I think for me, you know, it was that plus working through a pandemic where we were not really being well supported and just, just experiencing the, the misery of very demanding, aggressive customers and, just wanting to be able to have a support structure in place to, you know, advance our needs and address both like our economic concerns for sure, but also like have a formalized voice in the workplace because otherwise you like, you know, like it's cliche, but like if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And like, we all felt like we were on the menu at work. What would you like others working in retail in a city like New York to know about how you managed to navigate this whole process and maybe some words of encouragement, perhaps. I think, you know, first and foremost, we were successful and we were very successful, right? But it was so much work and it took so much out of the entirety of the workforce that I understand in a deep level why union drives fail as often as they do, because like we did everything right. And I still 
felt very shaky at a lot of times, right? The other thing is, is like, especially right now, there is a national shortage of people willing to work retail jobs. Even Amazon, you know, started having signing bonuses to get to pe- people to work in Amazon warehouses because they've realized nobody wants to do these miserable damn jobs and get COVID and deal with the nonsense and the brutality that's put forth on their bodies, right? So there's no time like right now to organize. And like we have a moment that we have not had in in my entire generation to do everything we can to cement victories and to actually build organizational structure. So let's let's take advantage of that now. And let's organize and build power now so that we can cement every single victory that they can't claw back from us. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. Welcome to En Masse, stories of struggle and hope from the working class. I'm your host, Liz Medina. As a special bonus episode to keep you going while I work on season two, I have with me today, Daisy Pitkin, author of On the Line, a story of class, solidarity, and two women's epic fight to build a union. It's a deeply personal, beautiful, and relevant book that chronicles a bold five-year campaign to bring a union to the dangerous industrial laundry factories in Phoenix, Arizona. So thank you so much for joining us today, Daisy. Yeah, it's nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. This is right from your first few pages. You're talking about being at a hospital. So here's Daisy. I've been to the hospital three times in two months, each time requiring a dose of morphine in order to withstand the hurt of infection and once the passing of kidney stones. As the nurses pushed the drug into the IV, my face grew heavy, my head hummed, my body stiffened and shook, hypothermic as the refrigerated drip entered my bloodstream. This was eight years after we launched the campaign at your laundry, three and a half years since we had spoken. And I still thought of you, Alma, as I asked for one blanket and then another and another. I thought of you as the nurses pulled them from a metal cabinet in the corner of the curtain enclosed stall and shook the thin material open in the airspace above the bed. As the blankets fluttered down, each one adding a layer to the thickening cocoon that enclosed my body. I thought of you and of Santiago and Anilia and Antonia and Reina and Cecilia. That hospital, University Medical Center, contracts linen service from your industrial laundry. You touched those blankets. And this is just like a stretch. The whole book is very striking in this way. And I just want to dig a little bit deeper and find out like, you know, why did this campaign specifically, and specifically your relationship with Alma, affect you to such an extent that you were thinking about her in this moment of vulnerability in the hospital? And further, you decided to write a whole book about it, uh, really. Thanks for those kind words about the book. But I started writing the book the day after that scene in the hospital. And I had already been away from the union for two years at that point. And union campaigns are crazy. They're intense. They are nonstop. We didn't sleep really very much at all during the years of the organizing in Phoenix. And I really, I got 
I was incredibly burned out and sick at the end of it. And I left the union and thought I would never think about it again. I really thought I was done because it was hard. It was really hard. And, and there's some heartbreak that happens at the end of the book that I think exacerbated that difficulty. And Alma and I were not in touch anymore, even though we'd been friends for a long time. And right before that scene in the book, you know, I was like in graduate school and bartending. That's what I was doing. And the bar that I was working at switched from using a union laundry in town to a non-union laundry. And I was new at the bar and I protested to the owner and to some other folks, but I couldn't really do much about it. And then one day I saw the driver of the non-union laundry's truck who had come to pick up the bar rags from the back of the bar. And he was the same driver who used to scream slurs and terrible things at Alma and I and the other organizers while we were standing in front of her factory handing out union leaflets. And I saw him and that night I got really sick and had to go to the hospital as is described in that scene. And I think a lot of what's interesting about industrial laundry organizing is that people, it's largely invisible work. People don't think about where do the sheets from the hospital get washed or where do the sheets from the hotel get washed or the bar rags. And they get washed in every city in the country in these factories that sit either on the outskirts of town or sometimes are tucked away in warehouses right in the center of town. But we're not really aware of them just moving around in our day-to-day lives. And so I saw that driver and went into the hospital and I knew that the sheets that I were was lying on the pillowcase, the hospital gown, the blankets that I was wrapped in, they were going to go on a truck that night and be driven up the I-10 to Phoenix. And Alma was going to touch them like with her hands. The intimacy of that is something that I think a lot of people don't think about. And I wanted to start the book with that intimacy because I think it's really important. There are humans that touch the cloth that we come into contact with all the time. And they work in these big, often very dangerous factories in conditions that are hard to imagine in contemporary American society or U.S. society, I think. And so I think the book came out of the urgency of describing that that intimacy and why it's important to everyone why it should be important, why we were were intimately connected with the working conditions in those factories, whether we want to be or not. Absolutely. I thought that was really powerful. It's making all the invisible labor that supports our lives and makes our lives possible, visible, that's like cognitive mapping that I think that Jameson once talked about of our economy and in a really beautiful way. Thank you, Daisy Pitkin, for this fantastic book. You can pick it up on the line, a story of class, solidarity, and two women's epic fight to build a union at your independent bookstore. Thank you for listening. No guards, no masters, only helpful advice. It's Red Dead Redemption with Auckland Union Representative Justine Sachs. Morena, Justine. How are you today? Morena, Rachel. I'm just enjoying this 
lovely weather. Oh, it's gorgeous, isn't it? It's gorgeous. Yep. Every time the lightning crashes outside, Zoe and I squeal like children. It's very exciting in here. Yeah, me too. <laughs> We've got uh, some questions from the listeners that have come in uh, this morning and over the last week about employment and union stuff. So let's get stuck in. Uh, we've just had one that's come through this morning. Do you want to give us a whirl on this one, Zoe? Yeah, yeah. So this person says, question for Justine, please. I'm following Jorts the Cat on Twitter. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> we love Jorts the Cat. If um, anyone doesn't know what we're talking about, go look up Jorts the Cat on Twitter. He's great. <laughs> so this person is following Jorts the Cat and says that one of the things that he has been saying is that it's illegal for companies in the U.S., to stop employees discussing their wages. Do we have anything like that here? Because I know a lot of places say that you can't during um, to individual uh, employment contracts. Okay, it's a good question. I actually saw that tweet from George. God bless him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, okay, so no one can stop you from discussing your pay. It is illegal. Pay transparency, you, you know, like you were allowed to discuss your pay with your coworkers. Unless, and here's the unless. Now, employers can put it in your contract that you're not allowed to discuss your pay. That's something you should look out for when you are accepting a job. It is not a good sign if an employer puts that in, in your contract because it actually, yeah, if they don't, so you, if you sign it, it's basically like you can sign away your rights, which sucks. That does <laughs> I'm just going to be clear. It sucks. So you have the right to discuss your pay unless you see that in your contract and you sign it. So what I would, I know that this is a difficult thing to say, but right now we are in a tight um, labor market, which means that you have a little bit more leverage as workers. And I would really encourage um, people at this specific moment in time where there's so many shortages and, and employers are desperate to actually push back against that because it's bullshit. And it, it, it's the way that they keep wages low and they let inequities in the workplace just you know, just go like, you know, without any kind of transparency. Um, the, the great thing, like the thing that's really funny about it is in a unionized workplace, the pay is so transparent. Everybody knows what every, yeah, yeah, we, yeah. you know, like we've got skips, everyone knows. Um, and, and it's just unthinkable. And I like, um, you know, like it's kind of funny in a unionized workplace, like you talk to someone in a non-unionized workplace and you ask them what they earn and some people get funny about it. It's like, not, it's like different worlds, right? And I think we really have to shift that like larger culture. It's like, yes, we need to talk about pay, 100%. So it's a tight labor market, so now's the time to push back against that if that's in your contract. It is a bit of a red flag for me if an employer puts that in, in your contract, just so you know. Well, thank Good you very much for that one, Justine. That's some very sage advice, as per usual, uh, for the people being like, "What? what is Jorts? Honestly, just <laughs> look it up. It's You'll find the, the Reddit the thread. Of the new- the new union movement. He's the leader of the new union movement. Honestly, amazing, amazing uh, icon. I put him in the podcast. Uh, okay, thank you so much for that, Justine. Have a fantastic yes. rest of your morning. Enjoy the storm. Stay dry. Yep. We'll, we'll talk too. to you soon. Talk to you soon. Bye. Yeah, take that, the man. Red Dead Redemption with Auckland union representative Justine Sachs. Hey, that's it for this edition of the Labour Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the nearly 150 Labour Radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labour Radio Podcast Network. Remember, we've got links to all the shows you heard today in the show notes for this podcast. You'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org. We just did a refresh. Hope you like it. Let us know. You can also find the shows by using the hashtag laborradiopod.org. 
on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited by Patrick Dixon and Mel Smith. I produce the show and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. You can find out more on our website at laborradionetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local labor radio podcast show.